0: Welcome to Spoleto Backstage. We're really glad you can join us for the penultimate episode of our premiere series. We're coming to you from Charleston, South Carolina, the host city for Spoleto Festival USA and little sister Piccolo Spoleto, an international arts festival and outreach program in the number two rated tourist destination in the world. We love what happens on stage and we also love what happens backstage. That's what we bring to you. I'm your host, Jeanette Gwen. This time, we'll meet the conductor of Pia del Ptolemy, and Victoria Hansen has the backstory on this year's Spoleto Festival poster. We take a deep dive into the U.S. premiere of the opera Tree of Codes. I'll talk to conductor John Kennedy, but first, Bradley Fuller discusses audiences and access with the acclaimed Australian composer Lisa Lim.
1: Among the operas of the 2018 Spoleto Festival lineup is Tree of Codes, a recent work by Australian composer Lisa Lim in which many of the distinctions separating the real world from fantasy dissolve. Here to talk with me about the opera is the composer herself. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Bradley. It's great to be here. A big event on this year's Spoleto Festival calendar is the U.S. premiere of your 2015 opera, Tree of Codes, originally commissioned by the Cologne Opera. This is a composition partially inspired by a work of visual art,
2: Yes, well, it's actually a a book by Jonathan Safran Foer, which is both a literary work and, I would say, a work of art because it's it's very unusual in that the book is made up of cutouts. Every page has these spaces where phrases and words have been sliced out, just leaving these islands of of other text. And so it's very suggestive, you know, kind of panorama where you can see through the gaps. You see other phrases, they suggest other worlds, a sense of, of, you know, retrieving memories from different layers of the past, of one's consciousness. So that's really something I work with in this work.
1: When did you first come into contact with this book or this work of art?
2: Yes, I saw, um, it was being advertised actually as a Christmas, you know, special in, uh, in England when I was living there. Uh, and I was so fascinated by how it looked and the subject matter that I ran out to get it, uh, this was in 2010, uh, and immediately thought this would be a great, uh, you know, kind of material to work with in terms of, of an opera because, you know, opera is one of those unreal worlds, you know. It's it's a place where you can, um, you know, imagine other realities. It is a make-believe world. And so, uh, a work, you know, a book which is about, um, you know, kind of the magic realities that that actually surround us in our everyday lives, was something very attractive to me.
1: So these are some of the themes going into Tree of Codes: this reality that's not straightaway noticed, some of these ambiguities, in betweenness. What topics or questions were you hoping to address in the opera, uh, going along these lines?
2: Yes, well, actually, I've had very uh, many really interesting conversations with members of the audience here, and they all have a different take on it. So, you know, I'm reluctant to sort of pin it down to any any one thing. But there are characters on stage. There's the the figure of the sun, played by the fabulous baritone Elliot Madore, and also this character called Adela, played by Marisol Montalvi, Montalvo, excuse me, soprano, uh, who represents... Uh, you know, uh, as a, a kind of archetypal woman. So she's this figure of desire. She's also represents this kind of very earth figure that has access to a world of mystery. And so the, the opera really deals with the journey of the sun and uh, the way in which that journey is is kind of really Uh, transformed uh, and and the the different kinds of knowledge that he encounters via this woman, Adela. He's looking for the father. The father never appears on the opera stage. He's an absent figure, but there's the the kind of themes which are around uh, legacy, memory, what comes from the past that still lives within us. And, of course, you know, this idea of codes, you know, one thinks of DNA and the way in which... You know, there are things unconscious in us about the past that, that still speak through us, that still move through us and make us make choices and, you know, um, ways of doing things in, in our everyday lives that we're not really aware of. And so the opera kind of tries to deal with this, this aspect of looking, looking to the future, but really also being um, moved by aspects of the past.
1: Would you say that some of these themes and currents are found in a lot of your other compositions as well?
2: Well, I suppose the, the thing that really binds uh, the four operas that I've, I've written is this, um, this notion of the theatre stage, the theatre space, as a place of transformation, a place of ritual. As I said before, you know, this kind of magical place uh, of, of, you know, where the, where the ordinary in the everyday can become something else. And I think that's quite uh, quite strong in this production. It's an absolutely magical production by the director On King Sen. I mean the lighting uh, in particular and the way in which the whole thing is designed is is completely spectacular and and magical. Uh, but it's also the the use of the, you know the kind of sonic world. Um, there are many sort of unusual sounds in the orchestra led by John Kennedy, the absolutely visionary conductor. So, you know, I hope we're offering something to the audience which is um, which is out of the everyday, you know, which is the sense that, that uh, you know, one can touch a world of, of magic, of transformation and fantasy.
1: Obviously, you've provided the music for the opera, but the libretto, was that drawn from the book itself or is this also something you shaped or adapted from it or is it entirely... Your own.
2: Well, I yes, I organised the libretto, drawing from a number of sources. There's the Jonathan Saffron Foer, and that in itself is a filtering, as I said, this cutout of the work of the Polish writer Bruno Schulz, uh, who was writing in the in the period uh, before the Second World War. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a world of um, immense, you know, kind of rich fantasy. One, I mean, a, a more well-known writer that people will be familiar with that, that kind of evokes the same world is Kafka. You know, one thinks of the metamorphoses of Kafka. You know, you wake up one day as a cockroach, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it's a, it's, it's a similar kind of territory. Uh, and so I draw upon um, both sources in shaping the opera.
1: In addition to composing works like this, you're also a professor at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, where you lead the Composing Women program. Could you share a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, So, you know, this is uh, a particularly uh, kind of, it's a moment in time, I think, you know, when there's there's, there's a more focus on um, the issues around women having visibility and a voice and uh, kind of this lack of space for women to to have uh, stronger positions of leadership, um, and uh, in all areas, right? Uh, but particularly in in music, this is the area I'm concerned with. You know, we're still struggling to 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 have any kind of parity in in any area of music. You know, not just the creative, but but all areas of of music making. And so that's something I'm, I'm very concerned with. Uh, and the program that I run uh, is, is really addressing that, how to open up more spaces, more opportunities for women's uh, creativity to, to, to have a go, really.
1: <laughs> what guidance or advice might you give to the aspiring woman composer? And uh, are there any episodes from your own life story that might shed some light there?
2: Well, I think um, I think the really key is is opportunity. Uh, the sense that um, one learns and grows and uh, uh, really attains excellence through having chances to uh, try out things, to to perhaps fail, but also to keep improving. So, so it's a sense that merit is not something that rises up fully formed, right? It's something that is is really bound together with with opportunity. So I suppose that's that's kind of the, the real framework for, for what I'm doing. And so in terms of, of you know advice for women uh, working uh, in, in composition, I guess uh, one thing is how women or all composers, actually I don't <laughs> I say this is advice for everyone how we can build, our own uh how we can build community how we can really increase the the depth of our relationships with the wider world so not just in the in the musical field but but in the wider sense of connecting with audiences speaking about uh the work um finding finding access points and so The whole area of education is very important to me, not just at the the university level, but I'm also working with um, high school kids and primary school kids and being involved in that type of program. I think all of that's really important.
1: Lisa, thanks so much for sharing some perspective on this and also on your opera, Tree of Codes. All the best for the remaining performances here at Spoleto Festival and for your compositional career overall.
2: Thank you, Bradley.
0: Thank you, Bradley. Now we move from the composer's perspective to the conductor, who brings the work to life. Spoleto director of choral music John Kennedy talks about Tree of Codes and a lot more. How has the festival orchestra changed in all the years you've been a part?
3: Oh, my goodness. You know, the the threads of it are basically really consistent. This idea of people at the early stages of their career postgraduate blossoming at the height of their musical powers. And so that's always been here. What seems to be the greatest change in recent years is the international diversity of them, because so many um, people from around the world come to the United States to do their advanced musical studies, as well as, um, shall we say, the overall level because as the competition for orchestra jobs has increased, um, musicians have, at a younger age, made the decision to specialize on that kind of, shall we say, musical focus slash career track. And so, even if musicians a couple a generation ago may have been just, shall we say, as gifted and just as poised, they may not have invested as much of their um, early study time into orchestral repertoire. And so now we have. Have students for instance who go and maybe even get a master's degree in something like orchestral technique and so that that sort of overall level and sophistication of orchestral plan has definitely increased.
0: Have you kept count of how many musicians have passed through the Spoleto Orchestra and gone on to really cool things?
3: You know, that's something we've really wanted to try to do. It's really so hard to quantify, but I'm going to guess that it's hundreds. You know, because um, from any when we go, look at the rosters of the 42 festivals, we see so many familiar names and people who are in all the leading orchestras and and orchestras everywhere. I think if you were to stand on the podium of any or- professional orchestra in the United States and ask How many people have been to Spoleto? There would be some in every orchestra. of very recent vintage from the festival, so Allegra Lilly, harpist of the St. Louis Symphony, Shannon Wood, principal timpanist there as well. We have a violist who just won a position in the National Symphony and the opera there in Washington too. Lots of people in the L.A. Phil. Rebecca Real, who was here as a violinist just a couple years ago. I mean, uh, Cleveland Orchestra principal oboe. You know, the, the, it's the list is long.
0: I think this could go on and on forever. Yeah. All right. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk performance. Tree of Codes. What is it? You're the conductor everybody's buzzing, everybody has a different idea of what's happening.
3: Mm -hmm. Tree of Codes is this, it's like this work of nature, like coming through the composer Lisa Lim um, in many, many different layers. And and I think it's the kind of opera where you may not really understand what it's about because it's about everything. And so what any individual takes from it in their own life experience or whatever story one tries to craft from it, um, it will be different. And and I think that's a wonderful open invitation to an audience that, you know, this is not a story you have to figure out or follow. It's one that you are also invited to participate in from your own sets of experiences and your own dream world, even.
0: You're also conducting You Are Mine Own.
3: Oh, goodness gracious. The Zemlinski and Berg is a really incredible project. Um, you know, Adam Ogoian, the filmmaker who's directing this and making it something more than just a concert, has a real affinity for music. And, you know, the the backstory of these pieces, the Lyric Symphony by Zemlinski and the Lyric Suite by Berg, are very rich on the personal levels of those composers. And it, it doesn't even really do justice to call it romanticism, because it's Deep personal expression and feeling about their love lives, as expressed through music, um, and their yearning for the most spiritual connection with the women who they were involved with, and there's a lot of musical metaphor in these in these pieces that is not just of the spiritual yearning, but also of erotic yearning and all the different kinds of loves through this beautiful poetry that describes the range of love. Uh, it's, It's just wonderful. It is operatic as well.
0: Music and time is one of my favorite things because you program work that I don't get to hear anywhere else. And it's been that way for years. I've seen things, so many great things there. What do we got this year?
3: A lot of new music by composers, younger composers from around the world. And that's really um, one of the focuses of the series is to try to bring in composers who we feel sure um, will have a lasting voice and we can say, oh, well, I heard that piece when. And at the same time, I try to put pieces together around themes and ideas so that there's a context to them that links them, a thread, if you will. It just so happens that A lion's share of the music on this year's series is composed by women. We do have uh, a couple of chamber works featuring works by Lisa Lim, the composer of Tree of Codes, and she'll be here. Really interesting music by the Irish composer Jennifer Walsh. Another piece, an American premiere actually for strings by Anna Torvaldsdottir, the Icelandic composer whose work Dreaming we did here last year on a big orchestral concert. A wonderful work that will involve a little audience participation by the New Zealand composer Anea Lockwood. Really rich programming, stimulating, I think. And then on the final concert of the series, we're featuring a duo of the most unusual composition. It's a, a double bass with soprano and they're called Departure Duo. Uh, The bassist is Edward Cass, he's a veteran of our orchestra, and Nina Guo, the soprano. And they, as sort of like as an odd couple, as that might sound, it's actually a really spectacular mixture, and they've created a whole set of repertoire for themselves that um, is really dynamic and engaging.
0: You uh, totally glossed over the piece, Declining. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, well, this is a, a new piece I've written for this duo. Um, and declining, I was trying to find a text f- that for me expressed uh, some of the changes in our language and our culture, particularly around uh, pronouns, which are non-gender based. Okay. And I couldn't find a poem or a text that really felt right, that that covered it in in the way I was looking for. And so the, the text for this piece I've written for them is actually just a series of declensions of personal pronouns mixed in with some other sort of playful allusions such as numerology and and uh, the musical solfege system and things like that.
0: When you compose a work and you put it out there in front of the world for the first time with an audience, how dangerous does that feel?
3: Oh, it feels very vulnerable. But, you know, the the response is always going to be incomplete in a sense. It's like, I, th- I think that a musical work really isn't finished until it's like been around a long time and we finally hear it with the perspective of time sometimes. And so, you know, there will be people who will tell me that it's wonderful and other people who may not have really connected to it. And yet, over time, their responses may change as well. So. I I don't worry about it too much. I I feel like most of the time when I look back at a piece of music, I'm relatively pleasantly surprised that I stuck to what I wanted to write.
0: We're always glad when John sticks with his original intentions. The Spoleto Festival USA poster is a big deal. We love to talk about them and rate them and name our favorites. Victoria Hansen has some insight on the 2018 poster.
4: It is quiet outside the historic Middleton Pinckney House. But inside, okay. there is a buzz.
5: So I would in that case
4: at the official headquarters of Spoleto USA downtown.
5: That would be the best
4: Upstairs, festival director Nigel Redden contemplates this year's poster.
3: A bit of franticness to it, and I must say I'm feeling the franticness today.
4: The painting, turn poster, is called Hither Dither by David Hockney. He's considered one of the most influential British artists of the 20th century well-known for his work during the pop art movement of the 60s. And this poster does pop, and the hues of red, yellow, turquoise, and blue. In some ways, it implies a performance,
3: perhaps almost a performance backstage.
4: Perhaps actors running hither-dither between performances. You can feel it in the abstract blue figures darting up down and around the stairs.
3: The urgency that happens backstage, which is actually fascinating to see where...
4: Redden says he ran into Hockney at an art gallery in New York and simply asked.
3: Well, in fact, it's always because kind of serendipity. I am actually got an email today about the poster for next year.
4: But he's not yet ready to reveal her name. The yearly posters, he says, set the stage for each festival appearing in shop windows and on program book covers. Redden especially liked seeing them hanging in people's homes, as was the case several years ago when he saw a Spoleto USA poster on the wall of a rock star's Caribbean home.
2: but It was actually Mick Jagger. I was just happened to notice this in the magazine. I just thought, wow.
4: Pretty cool. Satisfaction to say the least. Thanks for hanging out with us backstage. And if you happen to know a famous person giving shelter to a Spoleto poster, it's only rock and roll, but we'd like to hear about it. I'm Victoria Hansen for Spoleto Backstage.
0: Our final guest today is the articulate conductor of Pia de Ptolemy, Lydia Yankovskaya. The opera continues at the College of Charleston's Satilli Theater through Friday, June 8th. Here's our conversation Pia de Ptolemy has never been performed in the U.S. before. Can you tell us the story of this tragic opera?
5: For those listeners who are familiar with Atello, Pia de Ptolemy follows a similar plot point. We have a woman who is believed by her husband uh, to be guilty of infidelity, but in fact, all she's doing is saving her brother and having secret meetings with her brother. Um, at the end of the opera, of course, the husband gets very jealous, very angry, sends her away, orders her death, and finds out that, in fact, she's been meeting with her brother, and will it be in time to save her from her demise? I guess you'll have to come see the opera to find out.
0: No spoilers here, we're not gonna tell you. What is it like to work with the Spoleto Festival USA Orchestra, which is a young orchestra and they come in from all over the country, so they haven't been playing together before? Tell us about that experience.
5: I love working with young players. Uh, they are all really on a very high professional level here, so although they're on the young side, mo- almost all of them have finished their education and they're really pros. But they're also very energized, very excited to do this work. Uh, many of them are new to this style which is great so it's an opportunity to create a performance that is truly vibrant and to work with a group of colleagues who are really flexible and excited to try new things and to really shape every single note
0: the relationship between the director of the opera and the conductor of the opera what's that like
5: well, it depends on the production. This is an unusual situation because it is a co-production with several other companies. Normally, I would work very closely with the director throughout the process to really create the work and create the feeling of the work and create the atmosphere because the drama and the music and opera really one and are so linked. This was a slightly different situation because it is an existing production that has been on touring throughout Italy for some time. So the director came in a little bit later in the process and now we're working on figuring out how to meld that production and obviously my role becomes also to support some of the existing elements while continuing to open the dialogue about the interpretations and the interpretive choices that we're making
0: so what is the atmosphere of this opera
5: So in our production, the original story uh, takes place many hundreds of years ago, but this particular production is set uh, during the fascist era in Italy. It's 1930s Italy. So there's A lot of darkness that comes from the fascist faction on stage. There's also an anti-fascist faction. And Pia herself, our main characters, who's uh, who's hiding out through some of the conflict, often in a dark castle. And in this production, particular production, she is a collector of art, trying to save in particular Florentine art from the fascist and anti-fascist conflicts. What does that mean about the set? That means that there is a great deal of really beautiful art, many paintings that the audiences may be familiar with, that we see as part of the set, creating the set.
0: And you're doing this in the Sotilli Theater, What's it like working in that theater?
5: It's a lovely theater. It's wonderful. It's uh, acoustically really great. The pit is of a really nice size for this opera, and it's quite—it's a quite open pit, which is great because the instrumentalists can really hear what's happening on stage and connect to it in a very direct way. And the composer is Donizetti. What's your relationship like with Donizetti. Uh, Donna uh music, I think, has a kind of sparkle to it that uh, few other composers of that time have found. And what's interesting about this opera in particular is that It combines so many different things that are part of Donizetti. Uh, There are aspects of it that harken back to his earlier operas. There are aspects that sound like they come straight from Lucia or some things that come from his later works or even that clearly played an influence on other composers like Verdi. I want to talk about how
0: you studied, how you learned. So who did you study with?
5: I studied initially. I started conducting, actually, when I was very young. I was still a high school student when I first got on the podium. I was primarily a pianist. I also sang and played violin. And I when I started out, I was a concertmaster of a youth orchestra in which I won a concerto competition as a pianist. And I won with a Mozart concerto. And during Mozart's time, often things were led from the piano. So I ended up leading some rehearsals from the piano and the conductor just saw that it seemed to come naturally to me and said to me, Do you want to conduct a symphony at our next performance and I had no idea what I was doing but that's when I started to really study conducting and I studied with my youth orchestra conductors and when I was young I continued to study in college um, and to conduct my own ensembles and in graduate school uh, again I I have a graduate degree in in conducting as well and then have had many mentors since then Um, and it's hard to point to just one because I've had so many people in my life who have been so supportive and so influential in everything I've learned. And more importantly, I feel like I've studied with the musicians with whom I've performed, because as a conductor, that's who teaches you the most.
0: Of the conductors that you've learned from, were they men
5: or women? Uh, You know, it was a mix. Uh, I ended up, I studied both choral and orchestral conducting. Also, I have degrees in both. And for me... Um, as a result, in the choral world, there are many more women actually than there are in the orchestral world. So I think that helped me to have more role models in this field. And then since then, I also have studied, I've done some master classes with Joanne Folletta, who's a pioneer in the field and such a wonderful conductor. I'm part of a program with Marin Alsap, who's also been a big influence on me. So I have been fortunate to have role models of both genders.
0: When you conduct, are the gestures that a woman makes different than what a man makes?
5: I don't think it's gender specific. I think uh, the gestures every person makes are so unique. Uh, conducting is not uh, so black and white. It's very hard to say, you have to move like this to to create this kind of sound. It is such a personal thing because there are so many things that go into conducting and making, drawing the sound you need out of a group of instrumentalists and bringing them together. So I think uh, there are as many different types of gesture as there are different types of conductors and it's really difficult to uh, to categorize based on one aspect of that person or another tell the truth are you a perfectionist mm. I think in music in general, to some extent, you always have to strive for perfection, but you also always have to be aware that there is no such a thing. So I think as musicians, we are all, in a sense, both perfectionists and not at all, because you have to constantly push to achieve more and more. Um, But you also have to be aware of the fact that it is never possible for everything to be exactly just so. The work
0: of a musician... The work of a conductor is hard work. You've done it for a long time. Why do you keep doing it?
5: I love the feeling of bringing people together in this way. And in particular, in opera, you have so many different individuals and so many different elements coming together to create something magical that I can't really think of many other areas in the world, in our lives, in different fields, where you have so many different elements coming into one. And to me, that is such a reflection of some of the greatest things of which humanity is capable to work collaboratively to create art in this fashion.
0: That's all our guests for today. Let me give you a peek at what else is happening at Spoleto. The Israeli film series will screen the Fifth Heaven on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. One Man, Stranger Things, a parody, is on Theater 99 stage on Thursday. Chamber of Music at the Dock Street Theater continues every day at 11 and 1. The National Theater of Scotland presents the strange undoing of Prudencia Hart, an evening of riotous theater and live music. Please subscribe so you don't miss our season finale featuring the Flying Lovers of Vitebsk and carry on Cheer. The producer of Spoleto Backstage is A.T. Shire. Executive producer is Sherry Hutchinson. Production assistants are Jenna Feeney, Marley Bryan, Virginia Swift, and William Howe, students in the Arts Management Program. Our intern is Clay Sears, also a student at the College of Charleston. Spoleto Backstage is produced in partnership with South Carolina Public Radio, the ETV Endowment, College of Charleston, and Spoleto Festival USA. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spoleto Backstage. Find us online at scpublicradio.org. And subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our podcast buddy, S.C. lead that's L-E-D-E, for an accurate and fun view of South Carolina politics. I'm Jeanette Wen. And I'll meet you next time backstage.